Future Forward Oros. Exploring tomorrow, today on the radio. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Laura Galante. And I'm your co-host, Mustika Absoro. Welcome to the ninth episode of Future Forward Aarhus, where you explore the future with us. As usual, every other week, we bring you stories from Aarhus centered on a variety of themes, like technology, migration, and culture, to name a few. In our last episode, we explored the future of work. This time around, we're going to look at the future of history. Sounds like a paradox. It does, doesn't it? After discussing so many different themes and their implications for the next few decades, I think it's only right we look at how history also makes its way forward in time, don't you? Indeed. The past is very much an aspect whose ungraspable nature is often overlooked. In a way, so far, we've indirectly always talked about it by emphasizing innovation and how it contrasts where we are now to where we might be. Which is why we're going to explore this today by looking at how history is being shaped by the future through things like the impact of media on collective memory, what it means to keep memories in a world overwhelmed with data, and how the perception of history can change depending on the perspective you can give it. But first, let's have a sound break. Wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Some writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are a-changing. Mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are a-changing It is cast The slow one now Will later be fast As the 
present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times they are changing. You are listening to Future Forward Orhus on Sudenterhus Radio. You just heard The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan. Welcome back to Future Forward Orhus, where you explore the future with us. When we think of certain events happened in the past, like the Industrial Revolution or the election of U.S. presidents, it feels like we can remember them not just because of our own experiences or of our ancestors, but because of the way they have been told through means like newspapers, TV and other channels. Yeah, and that perception also varies depending on who's telling it, which aspects are emphasized and how it's framed. The media plays a significant role on the way in which we remember events in history and, in turn, how we tell them to future generations. History keeps happening as we speak. Nowadays, it can get even easier to document the multitude of things that happen around us. But at the same time, it can also become difficult with the overload of information that surrounds us every day. Not only that, globalization also comes in to blur national boundaries. Technology gets people closer together, and this in turn also influences the way we keep a collective memory of history. Lisa will tell us more about what the future of memory culture entails when aspects like technology and globalization come in and what are their advantages and challenges. Let's have a listen. What memories can help us become a better collective, better people, or maybe you know, less ambitious, what memories can help us not be, not to become perpetrators? I think that's an extremely important question. The events of the 20th century give us a lot of material to study. From a European perspective, the two world wars, colonialism and the Holocaust mattered especially. What happened when and why? Those are the questions historians engage themselves with. Memory studies, on the other hand, deal with the how question in those regards. How did it feel? I have met with Wolf Kansteiner, memory studies expert and historical theorist at Aarhus University, to talk with him about future outlooks on memory culture and how a computer game about the Holocaust might have lasting impacts on transnational remembrance. Memory studies is a young field, but we can already historicize it. And it's, it's, it's I think, very clear that its origins are linked to a, a history a, a history wave, an interest, especially in, in, in Western societies, in history. Um, in the 19, late 1970s, especially 1980s and 1990s. That's precisely the point in time when, when Western societies had a great interest in actively shaping um, historical consciousness memory in the way that they maybe haven't done before. Starting out 40 years ago, memory studies were born from analog electronic media, a culture of film, television, museums and monuments. Obviously not very interactive and quite top-down. Digital culture, on the other hand, changes the rules of the game. A part, at least, of digital culture is much faster, more interactive, more fluid, and therefore... um, it is a, it's a, it's a challenge to the way that interpretations were shaped and especially in the way that power worked in the context of 
public history collective memory. Because, you know, the way that, that museums, the way that television worked, the way, the way even that film worked, is, is there were a lot of, um, a lot of censorship and self-censorship and a lot of power that f was directed in one way. And that changes in some uh, contexts, for example, in social media contexts. Memory institutions, like museums, are already digitalized because they cannot craft exhibitions without television screens anymore. Nonetheless, digitalization still mostly works as a one-way street. And many institutions of, let's say, for example, Holocaust memory, they don't want to because if you shape an interactive uh, memory sphere, you're giving up a certain amount of power. You give a certain control of the crafting of a narrative interpretation to the users. One of the most recent controversial discussions is the creation of a computer game about the Holocaust. We have already all kinds of uh, video games with historical themes. We do not have a single mainstream um, video game that deals with the Holocaust. It doesn't exist because people are, the companies that make it, are much too nervous about that. They simply do not want to uh, make themselves vulnerable, also economically. The most decisive question is, how do you develop an intelligent and ethically responsible game? If you can do that, then it has tremendous uh, didactic uh, possibilities because it, it, it crosses by definition immediately uh, a it runs across a transnational, transcultural trans, uh, space. I mean, just look at the way that, that generations play video games now. They, they, they play with people in completely different countries, other side of the globe. So it's very clear that it, what can develop here is a type of, of uh, transnational communication about the past that has very, very interesting possibilities. But as yet, uh, we, we don't have... We haven't found a solution yet. Similar games exist already, for example, loosely based on the wars in former Yugoslavia. They are asking serious questions and they're taking questions of survival very seriously in a way that makes the player uh, become, be able to identify, to, to, to develop a, a sense of, of to empathize uh, with uh, that situation. So I don't think it's impossible to find a solution to that challenge. But it's difficult. We don't have as yet uh, a solution. We have a complete lack of courage, both on the sides of the public institutions, uh, the national institutions, and on the side of private companies. But Wolf Kahnsteiner says there is a movement. A German foundation, founded during the last reparation payments in the 2000s, invests a lot of money into didactic. And they are talking exactly about these questions, challenges and impacts right now. One of my hypotheses is that uh, immersive, simulative digital culture, video games, artificial intelligence, virtual environments. So think about it. I mean, this is, this is a huge challenge. Think about creating a virtual copy of Auschwitz, right? We can do it. I mean, we can, we can write the algorithms to create a kind of virtual world which functions according to what we think, according to which rules Auschwitz func function. Uh, if you can do that, I think one of the ethical possibilities is to understand complicity in crimes, in mass crimes, in human rights violations, to understand one's own complicity better as one did maybe with more conventional analog uh, kind of electronic media environments where, where the role was, was less passive. So games are great, not just electronic games, not just digital games, but games in general are fantastic vehicle to to understand complicity 
So that could be a, you know, in terms of ethical, uh, can be a, a great advantage. And the worst that can happen? The worst one could imagine is that one tries to develop with the best of didactic um, aims. One, 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 one succeeds in developing a virtual environment that is then basically used to train uh, perpetrators. But then, of course, it's also very important to recognize that that media in and of themselves, at least not one medium, is not shaping that kind of identity. Perpetrators are created. Perpetrators are in history created fairly easily, unfortunately, with or without digital technology. It already exists, and I'm not so sure if if digital culture will make a big difference in that regard. But after all, why do issues of the last century matter today? Don't we have enough problems to deal with in present society? The importance of memory culture, wherever it is is that it renders a self-critical perspective for, for, for the given collective. Uh, but in cost or other types of atrocity memories, some, in some cases, are a good vehicle for self-critical uh, memory. In other cases, they're not. Um, I think it's very important to, to raise the question in any given collective, in any given country, what memories can help us become a better collective, better people, or maybe, you know, less ambitious, what memories can help us not be, not to become perpetrators? I think that's an extremely important question. But I think in, in, in the, the answers to these questions are very context-specific. There is not one recipe that fits all, all these different settings. Therefore, you know, the Holocaust memory is, is a great uh, possibility and, and a great, great place to, to study where self-critical memory worked for a while in Germany. It worked for a while, uh, 10, 15 years or so. From, the, from 1980 to the mid-1990s, it was a fairly active self-critical memory. Nowadays, I think it's less self-critical even in Germany. Wow, that was actually a very fascinating topic. Um, it, it particularly makes you think about the link between... Uh, memory and media and even video games. I didn't think that there was such a close link. And um, Lisa's with us in the studio right now. And I think it's, it's really fascinating what you have uh, written about. I mean, doesn't it make you kind of think, you know, there is so many already violent video games out there. So why should there be a stigma behind trying to recreate a video game that has a sensitive topic behind it, especially for didactic purposes? Do you think uh -huh. that is so far off? To have a stigma is so far off. Well, to have a to rec recreate a video game such as you know one about a holocaust, the Holocaust that is you know still a pretty sensitive topic. But if you think about all the games that are out there that are quite violent in nature, um, do you think that it, it's it's just as difficult to recreate something with such a sensitive nature behind it? Yeah, I think after the interview, I would uh, definitely agree with my interview with Wolf Kunsteiner that. The advantages are out there, but first we have to answer exactly all these difficult questions because violent video games are already in discussion and they're not touching upon historical sensitive issues. And especially the Holocaust is something that is so like an eggshell in Europe where you have to be really, really careful because so many different parties, nation states are involved in this issue. So I guess that's especially, um, yeah difficult to I, I don't think that the idea is far off because like you said there are so many advantages to it if you could have a cross-cultural dialogue about it 
but um yeah but he told me that he would be on um he said there is like this foundation currently dealing with exactly these questions because they have a lot of money they want to put into memory culture and um he's actually part of the think tank creating um, maybe a framework to actually create this video game. Wow, absolutely. That's, yeah, absolutely. It's a great field to, to experience and to, to dig into more into. So thank you so much for that report. I can't wait to hear more about what Karis has to say about her next piece. And we're going to hear this after a short song break. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do Is to save every day Till eternity passes away Just to spend them with you If I could make days last forever If words could make wishes come true I'd save every day like a treasure And then again I would spend them with you But there never seems to be enough time To do the things you want to do once you find them I've looked around enough to know You're the one I want to go through time with If I had a box just for wishes And dreams that had never come true The box would be empty Except for the memory of how They were answered by you But there never seems to be enough time To do the things you want to do Once you find them I looked around enough to know This was Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. Welcome back to Future Forward Orhus. In our next segment, our reporter Karis Husted talks with the, the director of the Creating Future Memory Project at Aarhus University. The project runs a series of experimental workshops in the public sphere to help citizens think about what types of personal data are being collected by platforms and how it is being packaged, archived, and recycled. I'm with Annette Markham, who is a professor of information studies at Aarhus University and director of Creating Future Memory Project. Annette, thank you so much for coming on Future Forward Aarhus. Thank you for having me. 
big data, I think, is a really complex topic in, in that it, people believe they require a background in computer science, privacy regulation, business law to really understand you know, how it all works. But what's interesting about the Creating Future Memory Project is you're using art and participatory performances, speculative fiction, as a way to sort of help people better conceptualize this topic. So why go about it uh, in that way? Well, as you said, it's because most people think that big data or datification of society is a complex topic. And what we really want to do is break it down and make it as easy as possible. As part of the project, we developed what we call the Museum of Random Memory, MORM. And what we're doing with MORM is we're running exhibitions where we invite people or lure them in by saying, hey, do you want to donate a memory to our museum? And then we act as curators or uncurators to have people look through their personal device or through their pockets to find something to donate to our museum. And in the process of having that conversation, then we start to talk about, oh, how much data do you think you produce on your own phone? Do you know who's tracking your data? And here, would you like to look at this program that shows who's tracking your data? And through a process of fun and maybe playful conversations, we're helping citizens think about the extent to which they produce personal big data. People have been recording history literally forever. I mean, since we've been drawing pictures on the walls of caves. So, you know, what what is really, really fundamentally different about recording history in this in this time of big data? Most of it is happening at the scale of corporate entities. So it's happening in big companies that aggregate lots of data sources. So it's it's on a scale that's huge. And on the other hand, everything is digital rather than analog. So you combine those two things and they lead to an interesting outcome. On the one hand, it's all digital and therefore it's it's always there, but it's really hard to find. And on the other hand, you have it in the hands of well, many, many companies. How do you anticipate this will change how we share memories in the future? You know, say with uh, grandchildren, you know, with my grandparents, we went through photo albums and, you know, have this archive of old photos, um, you know, in, in these boxes, shoe boxes. Um, but I don't really anticipate clicking through my Facebook photo albums with my grandchildren, but maybe that's just how things will be. We already have begun to bury hundreds of thousands of pieces of material in our own hard drives. They're the equivalent of shoving a bunch of photographs in a shoebox and putting it in the attic. My idea would be to have an international memory day, one day a year, where people would go through their digital archives and figure out what to keep and what to throw away. I mean, Facebook's happy to do it for you. Your year in review, and they'll remind us of our friendversaries. So it's, it's interesting to think about how the platforms themselves or the affordances of the platforms encourage certain kinds of memory making and discourage other kinds of memory making. Right. And that's largely, you know, it's, it's financially incentivized. So the memories you have that make money for a company may be very different from the memories that are sort of invaluable to you. And I think that's a really key difference in how memories and archives are, are changing in this digital age is that you sort of have this middleman of a um, tech corporation that's telling you what you should be uh, prioritizing as things you remember or not. And we have to keep in mind that the 
the reason they're doing that is ad-driven. Everything that has to do with archiving is not simply altruistic. It is meant to help advertisers profile us more specifically into categories that makes advertising more effective. And Europe has, has been sort of on a bit of the forefront of this idea of how to help people control what information from their past is online or stays offline. For example, the right to forget policy where you can um, you know, perhaps petition to have certain search results not show up um, if it's something that is you don't really want to be a part of your online history. So what do you think about those data privacy regulations? Will that offer us more control? So the GDPR gives you the right to be forgotten, but there are so many other things that are relevant in terms of archiving that I think get sidestepped or that are not part of that discussion. For example, do we collect everybody's Instagram posts? And if so, what about those people or activities that aren't related to Instagram? Does that mean that those activities are not archived because they're not digital? So do you think there is a future for analog history? Oh, yeah. There's a future for analog history. It's, I think, going to be really important for people to disconnect more often, to have strategies for organizing their information, and to think about what kinds of memorabilia they want to produce. But I suppose that probably won't come from tech companies and perhaps may come more from grassroots efforts or academia. In some ways, some of our tech companies, because they're the ones who end up on the front page of the newspaper when something goes wrong or when data is released and people's privacy is violated, these companies are also very invested in making change that governments may not be able to make. We, in the academic world of, of internet studies anyway, we spend a lot of time trying to put our PhD students and our our own ideas into the tech companies' hands because we know that they're the ones who can actually make changes and they're the ones who can control the interfaces. And so they're the ones whose minds need to be changed or who just need to maybe come to our Museum of Random Memory to be reminded of how fragile memory is and how just simply having it into data or digital form isn't going to suddenly make it present for people in the future. All right. Well, again, I have been with Annette Markham, who's professor of information studies at Aarhus University and director of the Creating Future Memory Project. Annette, thank you again for being here. Thanks. It was fun. You are listening to Future Forward Aarhus on Student Aarhus Radio. Thanks, Karis, for reporting on this topic. So, Mustika, what is a memory you'd want to donate to the museum? I actually think uh, I'd like to share all the memories that I had with my family members who's passed away. Like, there's so many things that I've learned from my grandparents that I wish to pass on to my kids one day. And you? Oh, that's really interesting. I think, um, for me, probably when I started to ride a bike for the first time, for some reason, I just really felt really accomplished as an 11-year-old. So I think we definitely should pay a visit to the Museum of Random Memory. as, And as mentioned in Karis's interview with Annette, the Museum of Random Memory, or MORM, is just one of many projects under the Future Making Research Consortium. To learn more about the Museum of Random Memory, and if you're interested in participating in this project by donating a memory, either an object, an image, or an idea, you can check their website on 
museumofrandommemory.com. And for our last piece, our very own Laura tells us more about how the perception of history changes as time goes by. You'll hear more about it later after the song break. Let's go. 
listening to Future Forward Aarhus on Sudenterhus Radio. Welcome back to Future Forward Aarhus, and that was Clocks by Coldplay. One of the most slippery subjects to talk about when it comes to history is World War II. Though Denmark was a neutral player in it, many were the positions the Danish had to take when confronted with the German occupation. This event makes us think about how we perceive history and how in turn history is shaped by the passing of time. How does its perception change? And to tell us more about this, I interviewed the curator of the Occupation Museum, Søren Rasmussen, to get his point of view on how to be more aware of the complex facets of history and how there is always space for more accurate constructions. I am here with uh, Søren Rasmussen, and uh, so thank you for joining us on Future Forward Aarhus. Um, so first of all, I'd like to ask you what the role of the Occupation Museum is in Aarhus. So what story is it telling? Telling the story about what it was like to live in Aarhus during the German occupation of Denmark. So why did you decide to renovate it? If you have seen the old place, it's in dire need of of uh, renovation, and that's what I um, the the walls are falling down all around us, and uh, it it really looks um, looks horrible. But also we would like to to tell the stories in a new way, which is more important. So the Occupation Museum is currently being renovated and will be closed for the following two years. So how are you going to tell this 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 history, uh, the occupation history in Aarhus differently? Well, first of all, we're going to tell the stories through people. What were they think thinking about and how did they respond to the special situation that is the occupation of, of, uh, of Aarhus and Denmark? So how is this, how is this history going to be told um, differently from what it was already before? Well, before we didn't didn't use that many uh, modern aids to put it like that. Uh, it was mostly just uh, written text on the wall, wall and things like that. And now we would like to to make use of um, modern te- technology to to tell our stories, but not only, of course. All right. And what do you think are the challenges that we face today when telling events like the history of the German occupation in Denmark? Well, the challenges are to to tell the story in a way that is aligned with the perception of history today. The way the story has been told is is definitely from the winner's winner's perspective, and I think I think it's it's a bit it's a bit too uh, it's it's almost too easy to to tell the story like like it's just a black and white uh, story, and it's it's not it wasn't like that at all. And the Germans were mostly bad guys. And they were bad guys to a point where they kind of ceased being humans. We would like to 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 paint an, a picture that is more nuanced. And um, just for clarification, can you give a brief definition of what you mean by nuanced? Almost all stories they have two sides, maybe even more sides. Almost no stories are simple. They they have have many many complications, and they have people who do things because of their own reasons. You have you have to 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 tell the tell the broader story to to get to get it true. And what do you wish people would re- would keep in mind when looking at the experiences of a resistance fighter or a Nazi occupier? Yeah, I, I would would really wish wish for people today today to to know that the choices that the people in Aarhus or in anywhere during the Second World War, the choices that were they were faced with were never easy. 
because nobody knew what the uh, what the world would be like after the war and they definitely did not know who would win the war so basically how can you ensure that someone is more able to put themselves in someone else's feet i'm 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 planning to 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 make something that we call the um, the the persona uh, which means that when you buy a ticket for the museum you will get an identity card and on this identity card you will you will follow the story of a person and sooner or later that person will be faced with some kind of dilemma a really really difficult choice and with the knowledge that you have of your own life and your own morals today you will try to to get some kind of understanding with the choices that people faced back in the day how do you think that people's morals are really are valuable in ensuring that someone can really understand someone who was not in their time. Yeah, it's that that is going to be the most difficult part for us to to make sure that that they gain some kind of knowledge about that. For for the most part of the Danes who were considered collaborators with the Germans, many of the choices that they faced, when you get into into their stories, you will see that a lot of them were in, a, in were in an extremely difficult position, uh, mostly financially. So they chose to work work for the Germans, and for these choices, they were judged quite harshly after the war. But if you consider that uh, position yourself, putting yourself in these in their shoes, thinking about you are a family today, you are faced with a choice of collaborating with the occupiers. Otherwise, you will have to sell your house, you will get evicted, and what about your family? Um, do you think that uh, the perception of a historical event keeps changing the more that we move forward in time? Yes, most definitely. I think that the farther away, further, farther away you are from, from the events that you are discussing, it's, it's much more, it's much more easy to, to, to talk about them because there aren't that many feelings involved anymore. Whose responsibility do you think it is to raise the awareness of the nuances that pervade events like the 1940s occupation? It is definitely uh, us as uh, museum professionals, that's for sure, but also uh, people who, who, who write books about it and things like that, they should consider doing it from, uh, from, from a more nuanced point of view. And uh, as a last question, what is your vision for a general understanding of a historical event and what might be the challenges to get there? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think all history is much more interesting if it is nuanced. If you, will, if you can tell a story that's, that is complicated and that has, has more than one point of view, it's it's important to 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 know that that most uh, stories are quite complicated and there will be more than one uh yeah more, more more than one point of view lastly actually um what is something that you as a curator would like to learn yes i i would most definitely uh, want to develop an effective way of of telling a nuanced story also i would like to to tell these stories without forcing wisdom or whatever down the throats of people i would like them to 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 feel entertained or to in touch with them some kind of with history i would like them to 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 feel that this is really really interesting and once they are finished 
uh, visiting the exhibition, they will be allowed to make their own judgments. Thank you so much, Laura, for that uh, interview with uh, Soren. And I find it very interesting about this, uh, the, the idea behind the Occupation Museum where you're given this persona, the identity card, where we can follow the story of a person so we could better understand um, uh, the choices that they made in the past. And in his interview, he also mentioned as why uh, the Danes at the time sided with the German due to financial uh, troubles, maybe. And it would have been through this, uh, this kind of uh, participatory uh, experience this interactive experience in the museum, yeah, more people would understand more about the history. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that the best method for, I mean, actually, when you look at all, like, many history museums that you've been to, even including the current version of the Occupation Museum, you can see there is still quite a long way to go in terms of how to make the history a lot more appealing and interactive for a viewer. Um, as we have also seen, uh, it reminds me of, of Lisa's report earlier, which uh, mentioned that, you know, through video games, you can make this experience a lot more interactive. In this particular case, also, if you are a person that, and you, and that a person who is uh, assuming a different identity than your own, that really can help you to really get into the role of what it was like to be you know, somewhere back then with the same situations and the fact that you are faced with trying to find a moral dilemma as you go through the museum is quite appealing. And it's, it's, it's a very effective way to really understand what it was like to be in a situation like the one in the 1940s. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So currently the museum right now is still under uh, renovation, Correct, is it? yes. And when will it open? In two years? Yeah, it's, it's going to open in, I think, in 2020. Um, it's taking quite a long time due to the fact that there is quite a lot of uh, uh, digital renovations. They're trying to make this a very, um, yeah, uh, a very diverse experience. So that's going to take quite a while. And until then, unfortunately, we will not know what it's, what it's going to be like. And we're going to have to hang on tight until we can see it. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. But that gives us a reason to visit office again in 2020. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that was our show today. And today's episode was co-hosted by me, Mustika Absoro. And me, Laura Galante. Our technical editor today is Lisa Uldbauer. And our feedback listener is Chio Valderabano. Our jingle was mixed by Xiao Lang with music by Simon Mathewson. Unfortunately, dear listeners, this wraps up the end of the second season, and it's been so much fun exploring the future in so many interesting themes. Unfortunately, dear listeners, this wraps up the end of the second season, and it's been so much fun exploring the future in so many interesting themes. But remember, you can find and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash futureforwardohus and subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out on Future Forward Ohus was brought to you by Keris Hustad, Lisa Ulbrauer, Chio Valderobano, Lucia Camblor, Chiu Chen, Laura Galante, and yours truly, Mustika Absoro. Let's end this episode with an iconic classic that brings nostalgic vibes to the old and young. This is Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. Until next time, and good night. Now I have the time of my life.
Future Forward Oros. Exploring tomorrow, today on the radio. 